We'll walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Always let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so you might know how you ought to answer each person. Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. We have started a new series last week, a little mini-series, where we are asking the question, how do we walk in wisdom towards outsiders? What does it mean to make the best use of our time? And what we are doing is we are taking, um, we are looking at all, each week we are looking at, at a different place that an outsider might be in in relationship to Jesus and the church. Last week we uh, looked at, um, and we're taking a passage, a specific passage, and, and, and seeing what we might learn from that passage on how to walk in wisdom towards that per- person in a particular situation. How do we serve them? How do we love them? Last week we talked about uh, what it means to walk in wisdom towards those who are totally unfamiliar with, unacquainted with, and uninterested in Jesus and Christianity. And we looked at Paul and how he interacted with people in Athens. Uh, in other words, we're talking about people who, who don't know the difference between Moses and Methuselah, who don't know um, the difference between Malachi and Matthew, who aren't really sure what's the difference between a teaching of Jesus and a teaching of Buddha. And that is many people in our city, as Barna ranks it, the second most never church city in America, and in the top 10 of unchurched cities. It may be that some of you are in that place, and if that's, if that's true, uh, we just want to say we're really, really glad you're here. And we hope to help you navigate and orient you to the truth and the teachings about Christianity, the teachings of Jesus. But this week, we're not talking about those who are totally disinterested or unfamiliar with Christianity. We're talking about those who are interested, what we might call seekers or inquirers. And one of the best passages, one of the most interesting passages dealing with how to walk in wisdom before an inquirer is the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, turn there. If you need a Bible, there are Bibles at the Credenzas. You can get up and go grab one right now. If you don't know where Acts is, there's a table of contents for you in the front of your Bible. As you're getting oriented to that, let me pray for us. Lord, some of us here come believing, trusting in you. And wanting to know how to serve you, would you show us? Some of us come in here, Lord, not sure if you are there, but we want you to be. And we want to know how to find you and how to have a relationship with you. Would you come to us? No matter who we are, would you minister to us by your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in North America and Europe, uh, both of those places compose about 10% of global Christianity right now. Latin America is about 50% of global, or 15, sorry, percent of global Christianity. Asia is, represents near 20% of global Christianity. And in Africa, it's over 50% of global Christianity. Over 50% of Christians around the world reside in Africa. Two things from that that are quite interesting. One is to think about this. There is no other religion like that. 
every other major world religion is located in a certain geography. None of them have quite the same even spread throughout the world. Why is that? And notice the explosion of Christianity in sub-Saharan Africa. Well, I think both of the answers to that at least start in this passage where Philip crosses cultural boundaries and barriers and engages with and inquire from Africa. The story goes like this. Um, Philip is a Jew. He is uh, a Jew who grew up speaking Greek. He's a Hellenist, uh, which means that his parents were kind of devout but had lost a little bit of it. At some point, he ends up in Jerusalem and he hears the good news of Jesus Christ and he becomes converted. He receives the Spirit of God and the Spirit of God is powerful in his life, so powerful that the early church recognized that and set him apart as one of the first evangelists. That's Acts chapter 7. He goes from there as one of the first evangelists. Oftentimes that's misdiagnosed or mislabeled as a deacon, but it doesn't talk about deacons there. He's an evangelist. That's what Acts says. Because the first thing he does is he goes out and he preaches the gospel in Samaria. He has this amazing, amazingly fruitful time evangelizing in Samaria. Lots of people come to faith in Jesus Christ. But then Philip receives a word. A messenger comes to him and says, a divine messenger, and says, you need to go down to this road that's going from Gaza down to uh, down to, to Africa. And so he goes to this road. It's a desert place. It's in the middle of nowhere. As he's there, he, lo and behold, sees this cart. And while this cart is traveling, there's this man on it, an Ethiopian man who ends up being a church, um, ends up being a court official, a royal official in Ethiopia. And he's just sitting there mumbling. He's like mumbling. And then the Spirit of God comes to Philip and says, Philip, I want you to go and walk alongside his chariot. So Philip goes and he walks alongside the chariot as the guy's mumbling. And as he hears him mumbling, he realizes, I recognize that, what he's mumbling. He's reading the scripture. He's reading from Isaiah. So he says, do you understand what you're reading? I says, no. How am I supposed to understand what I'm meaning? He says, come on, get in the chariot. So Philip hops up in the guy's chariot and they begin to discuss what's going on in Isaiah and then he, in the midst of this, is able to explain from Isaiah and the rest of the scriptures the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what Jesus has done. Sometime later, they find some water, and the Ethiopian says, well, there's water. What prevents me from being baptized? So they get out of the chariot. They walk down the hill. They get into the water. Philip baptizes the Ethiopian, and he is so happy. He just rejoices. And the next thing you know, he turns and he looks and he's like, Philip's gone. He's out of there. Miraculously, he's been taken away by the Spirit and Philip starts preaching the gospel elsewhere. So that's the story. What do we learn from it? What do we learn from it about what it looks like to walk in wisdom towards a seeker? Well, the first thing I think we learn is that you have to stay curious and not judgmental. Maybe you will remember the scene from the first season of Ted Lasso. Ted Lasso is sitting there, he's in the pub, and he's playing darts with this guy, Rupert, who's a big shot. And in the midst of this, Rupert is uh, very cocky and is 
crushing him at darts. And, and Ted kind of plays dumb, and he asks the owner of the bar, May, he says, hey, what do I need to win? And she goes, you need two 20s and a bullseye. And he's like, okay. And then everybody just kind of goes, oh, you know, like you're going to get two 20s and a bullseye. And then he says, you know, when I was a kid, Rupert, people used to underestimate me. And uh, that used to bother me. But as I was driving, I, I saw this quote from Walt Whitman on the, on the side of the building, and it said, stay curious, not judgmental. And I like that because I started to realize that, you know, the problem is with those, those kids at school is they never ask me any questions. Like, like, hey, Ted, do you play any darts growing up? He said, you know, I said, well, actually, as a matter of fact, I did. From age 10 to age 16, on Sunday afternoons, I went and played darts with my dad every day until he died. 20. He says, you know, the problem with those boys is that they never asked. They, they, and the reason they didn't ask, that wasn't about me. That was about them. 20. And then he says, so I like that because you have to stay curious and not judgmental bullseye. You know, in this passage, Philip has to stay curious and not judgmental. In verse 26, he's told to go to a road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Now, the thing that you need to know about that is that, that Philip is sitting there in Samaria, and he is having a fruitful ministry. So I'm sure when he got this word, go down to this place, which verse 26 calls a desert place. Some scholars think that that should be tra uh, translated at noon because it's not really a desert. But either way, the point is the same. It was uninhabited. Nobody was out at noon. Nobody was traveling the road at noon because it was too hot. So it's like, hey, I want you to go from this really fruitful ministry in this bustling place, and I want you to go down to a place that is uninhabited in the middle of nowhere. And I'm sure Philip would have been like, that is crazy. Why would I do that? Why would I leave this really fruitful, successful ministry with these people here in Samaria? He had to stay curious. He couldn't prejudge. And then think about what happens when he gets there. What does he see? He must have been surprised when he sees anyone there. But he was especially surprised when he sees a dark African man who is a royal official. Now, this is a day where they didn't have planes. There's no planes, trains, and automobiles. There's no news. It is likely that Philip has never seen a dark African in his entire life. It is likely that he has never met a royal official in his entire life. And yet this is the person he sees. I mean, if someone came to Philip in Jerusalem or when he's in Samaria and said, Hey, Philip, I got this idea. Let's start an evangelistic campaign where we try to reach African court officials. He would have been like, say what? I mean, that must have been in a crazy idea. And yet he goes, and he engages. He stays curious. He is not judgmental. I mean, this man was, it says, from Ethiopia at, at this time in what we would know as Sudan. It says that he's a eunuch. 
The reason he's a eunuch, um, back in that day, oftentimes if you wanted to serve in close proximity to a royal family, you had to become castrated. It was a high price to pay to be in such close proximity with the royal family. Because at that point, it was like a security issue. And so, part of the security detail was being castrated. It was a high price to pay, but it seems like it was worth it because he was put in charge of the queen's treasure. In other words, he was the CFO of this region. And this is the person that Philip encounters in the middle of nowhere. Listen to me. Obedience to Jesus will take you to some surprising places. And you will have encounters with surprising people. So stay open. Be curious. My mom's here this morning. Uh, I can't honor my mom on Mother's Day. I can, but I can't really do it here because she's gone. So I'll honor her with a story. One time my mom was, we were in Florida. And in Florida, it rains every day. So what do you do when it rains in Florida? Because, you know, there's nothing but the beach there. They build lots of outlet malls. And so you go to the outlet malls. So we were at the outlet malls, and my mom's sitting there, you know, trying on things in the outlet malls. And you know the people there, they're, they're like, do you need other sizes? Do you need any help? That kind of thing. And my mom strikes up a conversation with the person who was working at the outlet mall. I don't, I don't know. Let's just say it was Talbot's. Who knows? Uh, because, you know, mom shop at Talbot's. So she's at Talbot's, and she's like, you know, trying on the different clothes and that kind of thing. You need a different size. And all of a sudden, you know, somehow part of the conversation that comes up is she mentions that, yeah, she goes to church. She's a follower of Jesus. And then the person, you know, you know how these conversations go. They're awkward. Like you're in the dressing room changing. They're outside and they're talking to you. And you're like, I don't really like you talking to me while I'm here in the dressing room. But they're talking to you and they're making, and now they're talking about Jesus. As I remember it, because I was totally shocked, Sometime later, my mom gets a letter from this lady because they exchanged contact information. And through that conversation, the lady came to start seeking Jesus, became a follower of Jesus, and got plugged into a church down there. In the dressing room at Talbot's. Like, who would ever thought that that's where a conversation with the seeker might happen? Stay curious. You never know. That's the first point. Never rule out the possibility that God could have taken you to a specific place at a specific time so that you could have an encounter with someone. Never write someone off. Not your colleague. Not your teller. No one. You never know what God's doing. That's the first point. The second thing we learn as far as what it looks like to walk in wisdom towards seekers is that you have to be willing to go at their pace. Verses 28 through 30 are almost comical. Let me paint the picture for you because sometimes it, it, it kind of it doesn't come through so clear when you just read it. In verse 28, Philip shows up on this road and he sees this cart with this man who is reading and as he sees the cart, you have to understand, the cart is moving. And the Holy Spirit comes up to, to, to Philip and he says, go join him or run alongside him. 
So Philip is there, and he's like running alongside the car. I mean, this is like what you see in a movie. You know the person, they've got their windshield rolled down, and they're like driving away, and you're like running along. So Philip's like, hey there, what you reading? I mean, he's running along with him. But I think this is a great picture of what it looks like to walk in wisdom with a seeker and inquirer. Because what it's showing us is that you actually have to go at their pace. Verse 29, or verse 30, Philip is running and he runs alongside him until verse 31 it says, he invited Philip to come in and sit with him. How long did it take? We don't know. Did he do it immediately? Maybe, maybe he was running for a mile. We simply don't know. But notice, Philip waits until he is invited in. He doesn't force himself upon the man. He doesn't try to manipulate the man. He doesn't hurry or rush the man. There was a woman who was visiting from China. Her name was Quay. And I got to know her briefly. And Quay was an inquirer. She was interested in Christianity. She had gone to a couple of Christian gatherings in China. And she said every time she went, she had been to two. Every time she went, during, at some point during the meeting, they said, okay, are you ready to be baptized? And she's like, what? I don't even know what baptism is. Are you, with your, are you ready to commit your life to Jesus? She's like, who is Jesus? She's like still figuring all things out. And they're like, no, you have to make a decision right now. You have to be baptized right now. And she was like, I, 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 I'm still trying to figure out what this gathering is all about. Philip doesn't do that. He doesn't force himself upon the man. He doesn't manipulate the man. He doesn't rush the man. He lets him move at his pace. And we have to be willing to do the same, which can take a tremendous amount of patience because we want the person to meet Jesus. But they need to have the time and the space to answer their questions, to move at their pace. And so wait to be invited in. There's tremendous wisdom here to be willing to go at somebody else's pace. The third principle that we get here, what does it look like to walk in wisdom towards a seeker? Well, the third thing is that you have to guide them in reading Scripture. As Philip runs along beside the man, he hears what he's reading, verse 30, and he hears that he's reading Isaiah, and he asks the question, do you understand what you are reading? And in verse 31, the man responds, how can I unless someone guides me? rhetorical answer, you can't. I mean, this is a man that had the power to do almost anything in the world but to understand the Scripture. I grew up riding motorcycles, and I, I got my first little moped scooter when I was in fifth grade. That quickly transitioned to a dirt bike, and I've been riding ever since. Uh, I commute almost every day in on a motorcycle. Not really in a motorcycle, you're on a motorcycle. Prepositions, Kyle. Um, 
So one day I had the great idea. I was like, oh, riding motorcycles, it's easy. Like, I don't even think about it when I ride. So I'm going to invite a bunch of people who've never ridden a motorcycle before, gotten on motorcycles, or maybe only been on one or, once or twice. And I decided, like, we're going to have a fun time, and I'm going to invite them to this event, and then we're all going to ride motorcycles together. And we went to this place, and I was like, oh, we're not going to do any, like, really steep hills or massive 20-foot jumps or anything like that, so let's just go and, and ride. And... Uh, it was actually a group of, of leaders here at the church. And, um, and one of them afterwards, uh, I heard them talking to somebody else who was considering going on a motorcycle trip that I run. And then they just warned them. They said, listen, Kyle grew up on these things. He doesn't think about it. He's crazy. Don't go. <laughs> like... He has no idea the difference between his level of experience and ability and yours, which is probably true. You know, sometimes I think those of us growing up in the church, we can be like that with Scripture. Like we've grown up in the church and we've grown up in Sunday school and hearing Scripture taught and we've been taught to read the Scriptures and to understand the Scriptures. We've been taught the theology through which the lens that provides us the proper interpretation of the Scriptures. And we think you just open up the Bible and it's easy. But it's not. What this man shows, how, how can I read unless someone guides me? is that the scriptures are not self-explanatory. They actually take someone guiding them. And so Philip begins to guide him through the scriptures. This is why in our, in our catechism lesson, the Westminster Confession and Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism said, it's through the reading of the word and especially the preaching of the word that God brings us into faith and grows our faith. It's because the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And that word gospel is a verbal noun, which means it is a noun that means to preach the good news, not just the good news. The good news is not written, it's proclaimed. And so the good news needs to be proclaimed. And what happens here is notice how Philip responds he comes and he guides this man through the scripture. Verse 31, he jumps in his cart. Verse 32, it says, starting with Isaiah 53, which is, a ser which is in this period of uh, this section of Isaiah called the servant songs. And it's actually a fairly confusing section. Because as you're reading through this section of the servant songs, sometimes it talks about the servant and it seems like the servant is Israel. And then other times it seems like it's like this body of people, a community within Israel. And then you get to this place where it looks like it's a righteous individual, a single individual within Israel. And, and so the man asked, wait, who is this guy talking about? Verse 34, is he talking about himself or someone else? Because the passage that he's reading is talking about this righteous individual who is punished for the sins of others. Verse 32, he, he is like a sacrificial lamb that is led to the slaughter, but he is silent. Verse 33, when he is killed, he is killed unjustly. So what happens? Verse 35, notice this. It says that beginning with this scripture, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. 
beginning with the Scripture, which means that Philip talked about more Scripture than just this one, because Philip re realizes that all of Scripture, all of Scripture is about Jesus. And that's how you read it properly. The proper way to read Scripture is not as a moral guidebook. It's not 12 steps to, make you through a mucky, to get you through a mucky Monday. The proper way to read Scripture is not just about some historical facts and figures. No, the proper way to read Scripture is to bring you to Jesus. And that's what we must do. Create the space to guide people through the Scriptures that leads them to Jesus. We actually see this happening in the early church. Last week we saw that one of the first things that, that, that Christians would do, that Paul did when he went to a new city, he, was, he would go and he would, he would engage with people in the marketplace and in public spaces like that, and he would start preaching. But they realized pretty soon that, that in preaching in that way, they needed to create a space where people could dialogue and ask their questions and get their questions answered. And so... We find in Acts uh, chapter 19, uh, they would set up things like schools. He set up a school in an educational center called the Hall of Tyrannus. And at the Hall of Tyrannus, he actually, in the middle of the day, while the school was shut down, he would have people come in, these seekers, these inquirers, and he would, learn, and he would engage with them and show the, uh, over the scriptures and help them learn how to read them. See, so he was creating space to do that. Justin Martyr did this, we know, in the second century in Rome. He set up a school just for inquirers, for seekers to come and learn. The catechesis school. Uh, in the 21st century, or 20th century, I don't know. I get confused about that. In the 20th century, uh, Francis Schaeffer did this in Switzerland with Labrie. He set up these places where, where travelers would come, where seekers, and they would, they would ask their questions about Christianity. Uh, this is really what we were doing last spring. Some of you know that my wife and I hosted a group at our home called Discovering Christianity. Uh, the prerequisite for the group is that you had to know that you didn't know whether or not you were a Christian. You either had to know that you weren't a Christian or you weren't sure whether or not you were a Christian. It was a place for us to dialogue over the scriptures and to answer questions and create space for that. It was one of the most rewarding things that I've done in my 13 years of ministry here, and I don't know why I just started it, but I do know that we will keep doing it, and we need to keep doing it, and we need to keep setting up other places and spaces for inquirers to come and to dialogue and, ans and answer their questions over Scripture so that we might explain to them and lead them to Jesus. Because the Scripture is about Christ. So engaging scriptures means guiding them through the scriptures which leads them to Christ. Listen to me. I can, I can testify to this. In my other life, in my other world, I wear another hat, and that hat is an academic of early Christianity and New Testament and Judaism. I go to conferences I go to conferences where I talk to people who know the scriptures better. I can name 10 people right now who know the scriptures better than anyone in this room. Anyone in this room. But they don't know Jesus. They don't know that the scriptures are meant to lead to him. 
See, the scriptures must be interpreted and read rightly. And reading them rightly means reading them en route to Jesus. Fourth, if we're going to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, then we must guide them all the way to life in Christ. Sometime after Philip explained the gospel in verse 36, the Ethiopian sees some water and he says, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? In verse 38, he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Now, there are a couple of things here that are kind of surprising if you're just reading it. Surprising to us, maybe. The first surprise I want you to notice is that it says that Philip goes down into the water with him. Now, that means that Philip was not being baptized. Philip had already been baptized. So when the text says that Philip went down into the water, this is a bit of a side, but I want to be clear. When the text says that Philip went down into the water, it's not talking about the baptism itself. It's talking about the fact that roads are higher than rivers. Otherwise, you've got problems. And so to get down into the river, you have to get out and go down. And so Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch go down, and then the baptism happens. So that's not talking about the mode of baptism. He could have been immersed fully. He could have been sprinkled. It could have been pouring. But the text doesn't, isn't talking about that. So that's the first thing. But I think there's something more curious for many of us, and that's this. If you're like me, you find this very surprising, that, that Philip goes straight from explaining the gospel. The text goes straight from explaining the gospel to baptism. You think, wait a second, how did the Ethiopian eunuch know about baptism? He doesn't even know about Jesus and Isaiah. What well, means that in Philip's explanation of the gospel, he must have talked about baptism. So if you're like me, that's really surprising because I grew up at a church where baptism was not talked about very often. It happened... Um, not in the middle of a service, but it happened before the service in a different room. And because of that, I was kind of in middle school once. I was on a trip with some, uh, another church, and they talked about baptism. And I was like, I haven't been baptized. I need to be baptized. And I, they I, kindly and I think rightly told me to go back to my church and ask them about it. And so I did, and then I was baptized. But baptism was always kind of on the periphery in, in my growing up experience. And I think it is for many evangelicals in their growing up experience. It's kind of like one of those things that we do as a response to Jesus and obedience to Jesus to show him our commitment, but it's just like one of the things and we could do other things. It's not really that essential. But note here that that's not how Philip sees it. That baptism was actually part of the good news that he explained, which means it is intrinsic and not extrinsic to the good news. Because to participate in the good news, how do you participate in the good news? Through baptism. That's what Acts says. Starting in Acts 2, the first time baptism is mentioned. People ask Peter, what must we do to be saved as he's preaching? In chapter 2, verse 38, Peter says, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. 
and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Baptism is central to the New Testament's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Baptism is the ritual of initiation and incorporation into the life of Christ. It's a ritual of purification. It's a sign of rebirth. It's a mark of justification. It's the entry right into the new covenant wherein God's law is written on your heart. It's immersion into the realm of the Spirit who is the pledge of God's future and final and ultimate redemption. And it is how you are added to the number of God's people. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. In other words, baptism is conversion. You might say, well, what about faith? Isn't it interesting that faith isn't even mentioned in this text? It's not because I don't think faith isn't also essential and essential. But it's like this. Have any of you been to an escape room? If you go to these escape rooms, like, you pay money to have people lock you up and get claustrophobic. And it's kind of freaky. I don't know why we do that, but we do. Someone should do a psycho psychological analysis on that, but that's not the sermon. We did it as a staff. Should definitely analyze that. So our staff goes in and we paid money to have someone lock us up in a safe room so that we could all yell at each other. It was wonderful. We forgave each other and made up at the end. But in this escape room, you often have these puzzles. And these puzzles, in order to get the door to open to escape and get to the next room, you have to put certain pieces, find certain pieces, clues throughout the room and put them together so that you can move on. Well, think of it like this. If there's a triangle and then the triangle is divided into three, so there's a top part, a side part, and another side part, you're looking around the room for all the pieces that will fit into that triangle, the three pieces. It doesn't actually matter what order you find them in, but what matters is in order for the door to open and for you to move from one realm to the next, all the pieces have to be there. That's how Acts views baptism and faith and the gift of the Holy Spirit. You see, baptism, faith, and the gift of the Holy Spirit are the three things that make up conversion. And unless you have all three of them, the conversion isn't complete. But all three of them need to go together. And it doesn't actually matter quite what order they are in. What matters is that you have all three. And so, oftentimes, the Bible will speak of baptism instead of faith because it assumes faith. And it'll speak of it instead of the Spirit because it assumes the Spirit. A lot of times it'll speak of faith instead of baptism because it assumes uh, the, uh, baptism. And it assumes the Spirit. But what's important to note is that baptism is one of those markers. That's why these are so closely related. That's why Galatians can say, in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. And this is tantamount to saying in the next line, as many of you who are baptized into Christ have put on Christ. It's why Paul will talk about justification by faith in Romans chapter 4 and 5. And it will lead right from that to talking about union with Christ in baptism. Because these belong together. And the point is, is that until a seeker dies in the waters of baptism and is raised anew with Christ, they're still a seeker. They're still a seeker. And so a full experience of Jesus is only found on the other side of the water. 
So maybe you're here and you're a seeker and you're wanting to know, how do I become a finder? I believe Jesus Christ. How do I know I'm a finder? Come be baptized. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some of you are here and you think that you are a finder. You think that you found. But you're not baptized yet because baptism like you, for you, it was like for me. It was on the periphery of your understanding of what it means to be a Christian. You're still not on the other side of the water yet. You still haven't experienced Jesus fully yet. Come and be baptized. Come in fully to the life of Christ. Finally, to walk in wisdom towards seekers requires that you believe that God is at work. Now, how does this come about, this whole thing? Verse 26, now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go. This is not Philip's impetus. This is God's impetus. God is at work in Philip's life. It's God that tells him to go and to join the chariot in verse 29. And this is a pattern we see throughout the scripture. It's God that through sending a persecution causes the Jerusalem church to scatter to Samaria. It's God that calls Ananias to cross the border to, to, to meet with someone who hates Christianity to go see Paul. It's God who calls uh, Peter to go to Cornelius' house. It's God who gives Paul the vision from a man of Macedonia so that the gospel might break into Europe. In other words, the reason that the gospel goes from in here to out there ever is because God is at work and God wants it to go out. But God's not just at work in Philip's life. God is also at work in this Ethiopian eunuch's life. I mean, consider it. This man has traveled thousand miles through the desert. That's extremely risky. When he got back, would he even have his job? I mean, it took a long time. Why would he go so far and risk so much? He has given everything. He has sacrificed greatly to be in the king's court. And now he might not be in the royal court anymore. He may have lost his job. Why would he do that? Because he felt empty. He must have. And then what happened? He took the risk. He went to Jerusalem. He went up to the temple. And do you know what happened there? Deuteronomy 23.1 says that eunuchs are excluded from the Lord's assembly. That is, they're excluded from the temple. He was turned away. He goes a thousand miles and then he's turned away. Because the law was supposed to say and communicate to eunuchs and to all of us that to be in God's presence, one has to be complete. One has to be full. And so then he is headed back and he's searching scripture to try to find out why was I excluded? Why couldn't I get in? And what happens? He's searching this section in Isaiah, which talks about the suffering servant who dies for incomplete people and inadequate people to make them complete. And then just a few chapters after the, uh, the, the verses that he was reading there in Isaiah 53, he would read in Isaiah 56, Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, The Lord surely excludes me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. 
For this is what the Lord says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. In other words, this suffering servant will make you adequate and bring you in. So do you see what has happened? The man was caused to feel his emptiness in Africa, which sent him to the Jerusalem temple. And there in the Jerusalem temple, he felt like an outcast, which sent him searching the scriptures. And there as he's searching the scriptures, he's confounded over the scriptures, which sent him to Christ. And then through the waters of baptism, he found Jesus who had already found him. God is at work. That's why we go out. That's why we're patient. That's why we walk in pace with other people. That's why we can cross cultural boundaries. That's why we can do any of these things because God is at work in the lives of people around us. Jean Ingelow wrote a hymn in 1878. said, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. That could be the Ethiopian's hymn. That's every one of our hymns who have come to know Jesus. That when we sought him and found him, we realized that he was seeking us all along. And he's seeking people out there. So go. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Make the best use of the time. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.